and welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. I'm your host, Micaela Parker, and on today's episode, we will be talking to Dr. Maria del Carmen Salazar, Associate Dean of the Moore Ridge College of Education here at the University of Denver. Her work focuses on a humanizing pedagogy, equitable teaching, and culturally responsive teacher evaluation, and college access and success for Latinx youth. She's a proud mother, scholar, Denver Public Schools alumna, first-generation college student, and Mexican immigrant. I am very excited for this episode, so without further ado, let's get into this great conversation. I am Dr. Maria del Carmen Salazar. I am the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice at the Mortgage College of Education. I'm also a professor of curriculum instruction and teacher education. And uh, my journey to get here was a pretty tough one. And so it would take me quite a long time to tell you all my stories. But um, just as a summary, I was born in Mexico. My parents brought me to the US when I was just an infant. And I grew up in the Denver area on the north side. I'm a product of the Denver Public Schools from kindergarten through 12th grade and attended universities all in the state of Colorado, CU Denver, the University of Denver, and CU Boulder always stayed close to home because of family. And it was a tough journey, most definitely. A lot of challenges along the way, both in my home life as well as academically in the Denver public schools and navigating higher education as a first-generation college student. Just very grateful to be here with you today and be in the position that I'm in so that I can make a difference with other people and people like me, but I would say our whole community as well here at the University of Denver and beyond. Thank you again for making time to talk about this topic because not only is it important, but I think now more than ever, I'm seeing a lot of discourse around public education and the role of public education in regards to topics around equity, diversity, and inclusion, I think most of the time is just buzzwords. It's not really put into practice, not in the material sense and not in an intentional sense. And your work has really led me to think deeper about even my own educational background and what I was lacking and what I had to relearn and unlearn through my own endeavors through academia and how unfair it feels to have to pay thousands of dollars to go to these institutions to take a semester-long class that doesn't even really scratch the surface of these issues and then us having to do all the scholarly work on top of getting the prerequisites to get our degrees but also the self-development work to learn more about our identities in these spaces. We're just dealing with the fact that we're navigating all these very extremely white spaces while also trying to grow into ourselves and in community with others that are around us that look like us. So I really do appreciate your work and I think that DU is very fortunate to have you. We're only going to help teachers for the future through the knowledge and skill sets that you have. So I wanted to ask as a teacher and a practitioner of knowledge, what does education and knowledge mean to you? Yeah, it's something so powerful. When I read your question, I thought it was a powerful question. Um, I would say that so many words spring to mind here. One is freedom. Paulo Freire talks about education as the practice of freedom. But I think I've even moved beyond that. Mm-hmm. For me, education is about dreaming. It's about aspiring. It's about inspiring. And it's about reaching. And 
I feel that education can help us even reach beyond the stars to see what is possible to see into the future. And so for me, education is the center of life. It's, it's the nucleus of life because it's how we grow and learn. It's how we as communities of color have been able to unchain ourselves, right? Physically, um, our bodies, our minds, our souls. And so there's, there's such power in education that I think it's something that is absolutely essential for every person to have access to, and, and not just an education, but a quality education that incorporates um, critical perspectives, that helps us to question, that helps us to unlearn, that helps us to push against schooling and engage in unschooling, and helps us to transform. And so for me, education, again, is the center of everything. And that to me is very, very powerful. And in my work, I really work to give people access to what education could be like, not necessarily what it currently is, but what we can make it. I love that analysis of that question. And that's even what education has taught me a little bit about myself. I love learning, but I've always hated school. It was the first place where I learned and was conscious that I was different? I guess it depends um, on how you define education, right? Yeah. Because education happens in our homes with our first oh, yes. educators, our parents, yeah. and our communities. And in the Mexican culture, of course, our extended family and our kinship networks and our yes. churches. And so there's the education that happens in Spanish. We call it educación, right? Yeah. And that doesn't happen in the school, the school building. It happens outside. And so education happens organically in our communities, in our homes. It happens inside the school building. Unfortunately, much of that is what you describe, yeah. where it's more assimilationist and dehumanizing. And so we've, our children come to associate education with this dehumanization versus the education that we can have inside and outside of school that we learn in our communities, on our streets, in our experiences, in our culture. And so that depends on how you look at it and how you define it. Yes, and I'm actually so glad that you said that because I was actually going to move on into talking about how my mom was my teacher. She filled in in a lot of places and spaces where I felt happy to learn because it was, even if I had homework, my mom was very hands-on about helping me with it. And even if it was frustrating for us to figure out things, we had each other. And that's what made me, I think, excited to learn. And I also have a space where I was able to decolonize what I was being taught and being able to learn, like you were saying, from extended family. Whenever I had math assignments, my brother and my sister, they have a different father than me. We would call their dad and we were like, hi, can you help us with this problem? And he was always there to help me. And he'd be like, yeah, I have, yeah, let me, let me figure it out. And my brother would be on the three-way call just so they could help me. Yeah, and, and I think education for many communities of color is a communal activity. It's a, it's a communal endeavor and, and we really look at it as a collective versus going to the school building and working to get certain grades. It's really much bigger than that. It's relational as well. Mm, I agree. And like you said, it's freedom. It's liberating. And it was fun growing up knowing that, oh, my mom and I are going to read this book together because I know for this class I have to do the 30-minute reading. And knowing that I would get better at reading if I read out loud and know 
if I think in my head that my mom's with me, I'm okay. And even now I think about that. Your work is so beautiful. And it makes me think of my mom. I always think of my mom. She's like, she's the first person who's ever loved me. And even before I was me, with all like my flaws and quirks and little niches, she loved me and like she wanted me to, to know that there was something bigger. And That's a beautiful thing. I hope my children feel the same way. <laughs> they, I know they do. <laughs> my mom, she's the kind of person that she's such a warrior. She's a fighter and she's had to fight all of her life. And it's really cool because I think of myself as a fighter, but I fight different fights. Like I'm getting my master's in public policy. So I fight in different spaces. <laughs> oh, we are absolutely warriors. It's our right. heritage, it's our history, it's our ancestry, no question. Exactly. And so it's a powerful, like you said, we can't, we help, can't, but we can't help but be great. We've got greatness in our blood. Exactly. But yes, going on, I want to ask you, as a first-generation student, I've spent much of my academic experience rediscovering myself and gaining new knowledge. As someone who is also first-generation, can you talk more about your experience in higher education? Yeah, I think people who have the experience of having parents who have gone through college or just having systems in place sometimes can identify with what it feels like not to have that. My parents have a third and a sixth grade education. They're Mexican immigrants, and they struggle to help us even through elementary school, much less beyond. And so the concept of cultural capital is so important, right? Understanding your resources, being able to navigate the systems, the structures, the game was a phenomenal challenge for me because I did not have those resources. None of my siblings went to higher education. I didn't know not one person in my entire community who had gone to higher education. The only people I knew who were college graduates were my teachers, and they were overwhelmingly white. And so it was a great challenge to navigate the system, and even to get to the point of aspiring to go to college, people don't realize that that in itself was a huge feat. My teachers suffered from the pobrecito syndrome, the poor little ones. They'll be lucky just to graduate from high school, much less go to college. And so they lowered the bar for us, which was a huge disservice. And they created a huge, it wasn't even a gap, it was a chasm for us that felt insurmountable at times. I graduated 10th in my class in high school and yet very much struggled when I got to higher education. But taking a step back, when I told my father I wanted to go to college, he replied, ¿Qué estás loca, hija? He says, are you crazy, daughter? And from his perspective as an immigrant parent, he feared the unknown. And so he asked me, why wouldn't I just get to work? Why would I put that off and go into debt and go into this environment? That was the unknown. He wouldn't allow me to live on campus, and so I stayed at home and went to college and it was just his fear around protecting his child more than anything from the unknown. Getting to college was a huge feat in figuring out all of the systems and luckily found a really great mentor in what was called at the time Hispanic Student Services, Paul Encinias at the University of Colorado Denver, who really helped build my cultural capital really helped me understand how to navigate the system and was a great support. And so having those resources on college campuses is amazing. Having a champion who will help you learn those skills and learn you don't even know what you don't know is part of the challenge, right? Yeah. 
very different from what I've been able to provide for my children around the technical knowledge of how to get into the system and how to manage and navigate and push on the system simultaneously when it's not working for you. Right? But somebody has to build that academic and college knowledge. And unfortunately, a lot of children don't have that, whether that be in their homes or in their schools or through higher education. And so it just becomes so overwhelming, I think, that um, the dream becomes very much out of reach. But for me, it's if we don't have access to higher education and learning inside and outside of higher education, it doesn't only have to be in that space, but it very much so can create barriers to opportunity for us. So I would say it's been a tremendous challenge, um, but now I have, I'm very intentional about building that knowledge with others, whether it's my own children or in communities or with families, to really help build that college knowledge, but also the knowledge of what is it that you want to aspire to? What is your dream? It doesn't have to be higher education, but I do think there's great power in higher education in terms of Higher education can help you navigate these systems and push you to grow and learn in ways you would never have before. I agree, and I think that's been something that's been hard for me to reckon with because it doesn't feel fair to always be the first to do things. It's that kind of like guilt because quality education should be given to all of us. It shouldn't have to be something you have to go find through institutions that you pay money to go to. It should just be readily available. And for me, that cultural capital, that's what's helped me survive because of my black and brown faculty members who were like, don't do this, do it like this. You, know? you hit on something important too, the importance of people who look like us. Mm -hmm. I did not know or think about or consider a PhD until I saw a Latina with a PhD. And in that moment, it was like this light just turned on for me and I said if she can do it I can do it and I remember presenting to a group of high school kids once talking about all the opportunities and the doors that were available to us and a young man of Mexican descent raised his hand and he said but miss we don't even know the doors are there and I thought that was so powerful like sometimes until you see someone who looks like you has been able to open that door, whether it's voluntarily or by force, you don't realize that that opportunity is even there for you. So the importance of seeing people who look like us who are in these spaces is incredibly important. I 100% agree. And I'm very thankful for those spaces because my undergrad was really turbulent. I was going through a lot of transitional changes in my life. There was a lot of racist and bias related incidents on our campus. So I always looked to those people, especially being almost two and a half, three hours away from home. Those were the people that when I was sad, I would run to and cry or sit in their office and ask them questions about scholarship opportunities. Those are just questions that unfortunately I wasn't able to ask my family. And it was interesting, I think COVID really taught me a lot about how academia teaches us a language that our communities aren't equipped to understand on purpose. And it was very, I kind of feel like sometimes in my life I'm a translator, mm. where I'm like having to tell people what I'm trying to say without saying the words that I'm trying to use. And it's always like, does that make sense? And then they're like, yeah. And I'm like, 
does it really? And they're like, no. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like my family, they've looked for access to higher ed and just unfortunately didn't have the resources to get there. And now that I'm here, I feel like I'm an alien within my family. Yeah, it can definitely be isolating, I would say, because then you feel isolated even in higher ed, but then in your own community and family. So there's no one quite like you at the institution that you're at, the institution of higher education, and there's no one quite like you in your family and your community. And so it can be tremendously isolating, but it's also incredibly empowering Yes, um, to know that you, you can navigate these spaces and, and help make connections between them as well. So it's yeah. a little bit of both. Well, a lot of both. I, I was going to say, I've been thinking a lot about incorporating what you're talking about into the skill sets that I've learned through my undergrad communications and ethnic studies degrees. And it's like code switching in the metaphysical. And that's kind of how I feel. I go into spaces and now I'm learning just to be what feels comfortable. Mm. I'm just reclaiming my space by being present, especially at the Colorado State Capitol. I'm quite an anomaly. Mm. Like people know me. And so it's very interesting because there's only like 10 of us, 20 of us. We're very spotlit in this space it's very hard because we can also be exotified yes and that can be a huge struggle too yes and yet we are in white supremacist systems and so and male supremacist systems and so um, as you work to be in this space the system will still try to anchor you in a particular way and will still try to constrain you and bind you in a particular way I really do appreciate your insight and it gives me the courage and inspires me to want to press on to explore what higher ed could be for me and I've never really thought of pursuing a PhD but I think a lot of people see that in my future. I I hope that you will. Oh okay well well, I'll talk to you then. I'll I'll get more encouragement (laughs) for you. I'll fulfill it in the near future. But last year you participated in the racial, educational, and healing justice event put on by iRISE. In your introduction, you bring up Tupac's quote about the rose that grew from concrete, and you say, I am the rose that grew from concrete, but the concrete is a part of me and is not something that I want to leave behind. It made me who I am. You then transitioned to talking about how your experience within Denver Public Schools was about losing what you came with. Then you discussed reclaiming your identity and your treasures in high school and how this helped guide you to become a history teacher and challenge the knowledge that you were taught and then teaching to students. How can we continue to decolonize spaces within public education and academia through unlearning, relearning, and centering who we are? Yeah, those, that's a great question. So just a little bit of context. I share my stories in my scholarship, and those are both in articles and also in my book on teacher evaluation. And I talk about the beauty and the harshness of the concrete by sharing my own stories and how the beauty and the harshness of the concrete make me who I am and how they make me resilient and powerful. And so I share that because I want people to understand that even though we may struggle in our families, in our communities, and because we struggle in our families, in our communities, it becomes a source of strength for us. The other is, yes, my experience in the Denver Public Schools definitely was challenging and dehumanizing in that context when I went through the system as well. And really, I wasn't able to find my own voice until I was a high school teacher and I started 
helping students of color to find their voice. And then I realized that I lacked a voice, really. One of the stories that I share is about that, one of the stories I share more recently is about how I learned that using my voice was dangerous because violence could come my way when I challenged in my home. And so I was always hesitant to use my voice until I became a teacher and helped other students, help students of color find their voice. But then I, when I got to the PhD program, and I was able to work with women of color, Maria Franqui, Cynthia Salinas, who are now at the University of Texas at Austin. And to see them use their voice was so powerful. And that really helped me to find my voice through the scholarship and through seeing women who look like me who are doing this work. So that definitely then led me to the work that I do today, which is around a humanizing pedagogy and really bringing that in through my scholarship and my teaching and my service as well. And I'll give you concrete examples there. Through my research, it's definitely embedded in the work that I do. I'm currently doing some research around the Achieving Excellence Academy in the Denver Public Schools. Ninth grade students transitioning into high school, eighth grade students transitioning into ninth grade and really infusing an ethnic studies curriculum and helping them get a powerful start to their high school experience and uh, bringing those components of humanizing pedagogy to help build the program and to also create evaluation frameworks for the program. And it's embedded in everything that I do and the teacher evaluation tool I created and the research projects I currently have in multiple districts. And it really guides my research and my scholarship. It also guides my teaching. You can see it in my syllabi. You can see humanizing practices and content, the way I connect with students and build relationships with them, the way I bring in challenging content and push their learning, the way I bring in multimedia through every class so that they get the experience of hearing from the people who are othered. And then my service now in the role of associate dean is pretty phenomenal to get to build systems that really infuse diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. So it's not an option, it becomes systematized. And so those are opportunities I've had to create change and I can do that in all of those spaces. And in my work with community. Community-engaged research I think is incredibly important because we center our research on the needs of community. And then we are able to share and disseminate our work in community in ways that can help them make changes to policy and practice as well. So it is the lens through which I see the world, a humanizing pedagogy. It is infused in absolutely every aspect of my humanity, of my personal and professional endeavors. And I think, truly believe that it can change the world. Truly, truly believe that all of us who are engaged in this work can change the world. I love that because it inspires me. The concept of humanizing pedagogy, which we'll talk about more, is so beautiful to me because it really centers and intentionally centers everyone's dignity, the agency of others, and it's very communal. It's centered in this idea and epistemology that you're valued and what you bring to the table is enough, like existing is enough having that be intentionally put and practiced within classrooms and taking in the cultural competencies that people bring in and educational skill sets that they already have from their own families into the classroom, like you talk about, and we'll talk about in the next question, but your treasures, bringing them with you and them being valued. And that's such a beautiful feeling. It's a good feeling to know that you're seen 
At the event, you talked and you spoke a little bit about your treasures and your mochila and your family, your Spanish language and Mexican culture being important and thought of as important to Mr. Lopez, your kindergarten teacher. And then you also bring up your Spanish teacher in high school who encouraged you to reclaim parts of yourself and rediscover and relearn what it means to be you in the context of your classroom. And then you transitioning to your college experience. How do spaces like these affirm humanizing pedagogy for students? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in my scholarship, I share this story about how I went to school with all my treasures in kindergarten and with Mr. Lopez in a bilingual classroom and how I felt so proud of my treasures and I felt like they shined as bright as the star of Bethlehem. And I loved to learn and being in this context was so humanizing and I was able to thrive. And then in first grade, I was mainstreamed into an English only classroom and my teacher made me feel that I needed to leave my mochila with all my treasures at the classroom door and that the teacher would give me a new a backpack, a one that the teacher believed would serve me better, which had U.S. ways of knowing, standard English, and, and the U.S. culture. It very much dehumanizing and made me feel that I had to leave who I was behind and developed a sense of shame over my language, culture, family, the color of my skin, and so uh, really working in my adolescence to start seeing how that had been taken from me and feeling just a righteous rage over that, right? Looking for my professors to give it back to me in college and realize that they would wield that Western canon to keep America from their perspective white and great. And so very much so a challenge to regain those treasures and really felt like it was an endeavor and continues to be an endeavor. It's a lifelong journey to regain those treasures and to see those treasures and to help other people see those treasures. Even as I move into a new role as associate dean, there's a sense of what will I need to leave behind? What am I willing to leave behind? What am I not willing to leave behind? And so as you adjust to a new role in leadership, there's, there's also an identity shift that comes with that. So I'm always navigating, always navigating this space around humanization and identity in the academy in a predominantly white institution and in community. What, what is that to negotiate? What is that to change and shift and grow? As you continue to shift and grow and add, right, and learn and change in very positive ways, you're negotiating with yourself yeah. often. And so... That becomes an important part of being a person of color in a predominantly white institution. And I would say any context where people have power over you and systems have power over you. Yeah. So it can definitely be challenging. But I think, again, that beauty and the harshness of the concrete, we grow, we grow within that and we learn and we change and, and it's good. As you transition, there's things that are scary and create uncertainty, but there's also beauty and there's always beauty and struggle. I think I see it as a very empowering space. Yeah. And so it, that space of struggle is a very empowering space. And there's, there's definitely so many positives that come your way when you're willing to put yourself in a, in a space of the unknown, in a space of struggle. And it, it's also incredibly empowering to be able to make an impact, right? To impact and help others to reach their dreams as well and to inspire and to be inspired by others as well. So uh, we very much, I would say, take a collectivist approach in, in the College of Education here at DU and 
very much so look at how can we build one another up. But that to me is an incredibly powerful community. I'm so happy that that's a community that you get to be a part of and help better cultivate. I think the community can only be better and the world can only be better because of practitioners like yourself and the people that you'll further bring along on the journey. So I'm very excited to see where the future is for the college, for the institution, and for you. I'm really excited to see what the institution and the college looks like in the next two years, four years, ten years um, because of your work. Too. I'm excited because of the amazing people that we have. So I'm very excited about yes. it. Yes. I wanted to move on to talk a little bit more about your humanizing pedagogy and a little bit about your interpretation of what that means, mm -hmm. not only in your work, but through your four pillars. And so I wanted to ask, um, how can we translate your four pillars of humanizing pedagogy, I power, culture of power, power of culture, and power of consciousness into curricula to benefit public schools and higher education for students? Yeah, I most definitely um, would say you can incorporate those elements at so many levels. One is into syllabi, right, and content, but I've also incorporated it into a teacher evaluation tool. And this tool is used in, in K-12 spaces, but it's also being adapted to higher ed. And so these four pillars live in an evaluation tool that's very much action-oriented and behavior-based so that people know beyond thinking about the construct and reflecting, how do I do it? And so I think that that is important. It's not only about developing a mindset that's humanizing, but it's knowing how to put humanizing pedagogy into action. And so I definitely know it's being done at the evaluation level, whether that is K-12 or whether that is higher education, but also I've done it and implemented it into higher education classrooms through my syllabi and being very intentional about it. And so this idea of I power is helping to find your own power. When people ask me how I am where I am, especially given the fact that I'm the only person in my family that was able to navigate this far, I tell them that one of the keys was believing in myself. Very, very important. I had to believe in myself and the potential and power that I had. But even within that I power, it's within a community, right? I always believe in myself within the context of community and see myself anchored to community, whether that is my family or my Mexican community or whether that is communities I feel in affinity because they're in the margins. Right? Myself is always anchored to community, and, and that I wanted to make sure to help people understand that often we don't move as individuals, we move as a collective. And then the culture of power is exactly that backpack that my teachers were trying to give me to be successful in the U.S. culture. Right? It's In higher ed, it's learning to write in academic spaces, it's learning to publish for academia and pursue grants and all of the basically rules and procedures you need for promotion and tenure. But within that, we can't lose who we are. And so we must have the power of our culture. And the power of our culture is really what makes us resilient because we can anchor to that when we're navigating these systems that feel like they're oppressive or they're stripping us of who we are. We've got to be able to anchor to the power of our culture. And that last one, the power of consciousness, that to me is the center of education. It's about developing consciousness of oppression and inequality and taking action to create change. And that to me is the culmination of then how do we make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. In the humanizing pedagogy, it's beautiful to see how you incorporate all these different interpersonal 
interpersonal connections to the importance of this kind of pedagogy, whether it's in the classroom for public school students, K through 12 or higher ed. It's just like as simple as the syllabus. And I think a lot of what professors view teaching to be is very factory oriented. Mm -hmm. Just get them in, get them out. Yeah, I think that the pillars of humanizing pedagogy, think of them as lenses, right? The lenses are the framework through which you see the world. And if you use this framework in your approaches and you're able to use the framework through multiple means to build your syllabus, to build an evaluation tool, to build programs, I've helped the Denver Public Schools to build a program that incorporates these components. And so for me, it's the way I approach the world. And so it really becomes, if you are intentional about it, you can use them in so many spaces. I would say to build programs as an administrator, as a professor, but you really have to be willing to use these lenses and use these, I would say, the framework to approach your work. A couple of questions ago, I think you had said that this is how you see the world through these pedagogies is your way of translating how you view existing and observations of others into your work and incorporating it. I think that's the important part is you have to put it on the ground, right? If you theorize about it and think about it and talk about it, you can still push people's understanding and thinking, no question, because I do think theory has power. But theory also has power when you're able to put it on the ground. And I think that That's one of the most important things we can do as academics, as professors, as researchers, is make that link and that connection to theory on the ground and and the impact of people's lives. You have professors who are engaged in community-engaged research. Yes. And so that really shifts the paradigm quite a bit. Exactly. And those are the practitioners and researchers and the people who are doing this work that is making the difference and is breaking a lot of barriers and breaking ground with in a lot of these systems because they have been working so closely with communities. And yeah. I think that's what's so beautiful about what I learned through ethnic studies was that None of my knowledge is my own. Whatever I learn, I should always want to give it to others and help others know what I know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that comes back to your question around what is knowledge. Yeah. But I do think that theory has great power as well. And yeah. so sometimes people take theory and put it on the ground, mm-hmm. even though that theory wasn't theirs. But the theory can really help push people's thinking. So I do think there's great power in, in different ways that we express our work and our findings as academic and that there's power in different modalities in different ways. Spaces like you're talking about of collectivist views and community engagement through theory can only help communities because it helps them position power where those who are systemically and in some cases disenfranchised from it are the closest to that. And that's a powerful thing like to be an associate dean and to be at the, the, the forefront and spearhead initiatives that help engage your community and amplify other communities through research and work. And what are we gonna do next? I wanted to ask because a lot of your work has to do with storytelling and testimonials. So I wanted to ask, how can storytelling be an act of humanization? Oh, that's a good question. So for me, storytelling links us to our ancestors. So in my family, the storytelling gift has moved from my grandfather to my father to me to my son. And who knows where it'll go from there. That seems very gendered because most of those are males, but that's how it's worked in my family thus far. 
So for me, it links us to the past and links us to the present and the future. And it brings forth our humanity, brings forth the harshness and the concrete and the beauty of the concrete. And it helps people understand our lived experience, which as a critical race theorist, we know that our lived experience matters and our lived experience has power and our lived experience should not be discounted and reduced to a number. Although I do believe there is power in numbers as well. One of our faculty members, Dr. Lolita Tabron, does work on critical quantitative studies, mm-hmm. crit-quant and quant-crit, and is doing some phenomenal things with quantitative work as well. So I believe there's power in numbers and there's power in stories. And as long as we take a critical lens to it, we can really bring forth our experience in powerful ways to challenge the standard and the master narrative and to present our counter-narrative and our testimonials in a powerful way that, that can create change and that puts us at the center of creating this change. Thank you so much. I really think that's the most beautiful way to end the episode. But before we go, I wanted to ask, do you have any resources or closing remarks you would like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I would encourage your listeners to check out the iRise website. Incredible resources there. I love to get the newsletter from iRise and just so many opportunities for growth and for learning. And definitely check out the iRise website. Check out the work of our faculty at the Morgridge College of Education. Really, we have some amazing faculty and programs. Check out our website. I'd love for you all to check out my work as well. And just really am grateful to be here and to be with you. Thank you so much again. I truly, truly, truly cannot express how much of a pleasure it's been. So thank you so much again. Thank you. For the last few episodes, I have not read an excerpt from a book. To get back to our normal routine, I want to read a section from our guest, Maria del Carmen Salazar's Humanizing Pedagogy, Reinventing the Principles and Practice of Education as a Journey Towards Liberation. She states that, Humanization is the process of becoming more fully human as social, historical, thinking, communicating, transformative, creative persons who participate in and with the world. To become more fully human, men and women must become conscious of their presence in the world as a way to individually and collectively re-envisage their social world. Humanization is the ontological vocation of human beings and as such is the practice of freedom in which the oppressed are liberated through consciousness of their subjugated positions and a desire for self-determination. Humanization cannot be imposed on or imparted on the oppressed, but rather it can only occur by engaging the oppressed in their liberation. for listening to another episode of the rage podcast the rage podcast is the product of the interdisciplinary research institute for the study of inequality or irise to learn more about what we do please visit our website at irise.du.edu to ensure that we bring you quality content please be sure to subscribe follow like or share on the platform you are listening to us on for rage opportunities and updates please follow our social media pages You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. 
Stay safe and you are loved.